Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to Cerebral Faith Live. I'm Evan Minton, and today we will be wrapping up our topic of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount uh, is talked about in Matthews 5 to 7. Hold on. I'm going to wear my new fedora. Um, if you see, saw my Facebook post, I got this new fedora when cleaning out my mom's stuff uh, up, at, up, at her, up at her house, up at her and dad's house. Um, she was going to give this to me as a gift, but she passed away before she had the opportunity. So, I mean, it even still had the tag on it. So I'm going to wear that for this episode. So... Like I said, this is the last one in the series. You can see on the outline here uh, that we've covered the Beatitudes, what it means to be salt and light, Jesus' attitude towards Old Testament law, anger and thought crimes, uh, lust and adultery, divorce, oaths, loving your enemies, uh, keeping your good deeds secrets, prayers, and the antidote to anxiety. Uh, you know, Jesus is teaching on not to worry. And in part 12... We are going. We are entering Matthew seven, and we are going to uh, just be. Uh, we're just. We're just going to look at the entire uh, chapter in, in today's episode. Uh, just give me one moment. Okay, I forgot to put my phone on vibrate because I didn't want anyone to uh, call in the middle of this. So tonight's outline is we are going to be looking at all of the topics covered in Matthew 7, an entire chapter, whereas before we were just kind of slowly moving through Matthew 5 and slowly moving through Matthew 6. And we're going to, the first one is what Jesus meant by do not judge, the famous uh, do not thou you you shall not judge verse and after that uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus says you know don't cast your pearls before swine lest they turn to tear you to pieces well what is that about what's why is Jesus talking about uh, dogs and pigs and casting pearls before before them after that we're going to talk about the wide and narrow gates which as as I as you will see uh, was a very difficult couple of verses for me for the longest time. And I really had to, you know, as William Lane Craig put it, take these out of my question bag and really pursue them. Because what I've basically been doing over the past 12 weeks is expository preaching. I've been rigorously exegeting the text, doing a little bit of apologetics, and talking about how to apply what uh, what we've read. And with one of the best things and worst things about expository preaching is that you have to go verse by verse through the you know, through through the book of the Bible you're going through, or in this case, just the three, just the, the three chapters, and you don't have, you don't have an option. 
about what you're going to talk about, what you're not going to talk about, as you would with a topical style. So I really had to study these these verses and, and come to some conclusions. After that, we're going to be talking about true and false prophets, true and false disciples, and the wise and foolish builders, which is what Jesus, that's, that's the final thing Jesus talks about to end the Sermon on the Mount. So topic one, what Jesus meant by do not judge. In Matthew chapter seven, verse one, we read, quote, do not judge or you too will be judged. So this is a famous, this is a favorite verse from a lot of non-Christians uh, and even many Christians. It, you'll often have this verse quoted just by itself, like I had, you know, like I did in the previous slide. I just had the verse in isolation. They will quote this whenever you call someone out on their sin. If you say, hey, I don't think you should be having sex outside of wedlock, or I don't think you ought to um, be getting a divorce because your gr the grounds for your divorce are, it's not adultery, you're not being abused, it's, it's not severe enough to warrant divorce, you ought to work it out, otherwise you're sinning, or, um, or just, you know, just anything that, you might be hopefully gently rebuking your your brother in Christ over or or someone else they'll quote it say hey god said do not judge you shouldn't judge others um and that kind of is like hey you're you're in the wrong for calling me out on what i'm doing not not me uh, however this interpretation of the verse is self-refuting Think about it. What are they doing in saying you ought not to be judging them? They're judging you. They're saying you are doing something morally wrong that you ought not to be doing. And that's what they say you ought not to be doing. You ought not to be telling them that they're doing something morally wrong that they ought not to be doing. They are judging you for judging. If someone tells you you ought not judge, what should you say to them? Why are you judging me for judging? To say you ought not judge is akin to saying it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. But if you tell someone they're wrong for telling people they're wrong, then tell they're telling you that you're wrong and therefore are contradicting themselves. They are truly judging you for judging and hence their statement is self-refuting. Now, for those not familiar with this term self-refuting statement what what is that what do i mean by a self-refuting statement well a self-refuting statement is a statement that as the name suggests literally refutes itself like as soon as you say it you undermine what you're trying to affirm um as some have said it's a statement that if it's true then it's false uh to give you some other examples of self-refuting statements um think about these my parents had no kids that lived, or my brother is an only child, or everything I say is a lie. Obviously, to affirm these statements is to deny them. If your parents had no kids who lived, and you're re they're really your parents, then obviously they did have at least one child who lived, namely you. 
And your brother cannot be an only child in virtue of the fact that he's your brother. He's not an only child. He has at least one sibling, you. And if you say that everything you say is a lie, if that statement is true, it's false. Not everything you say is a lie. At least this one statement is an exception to the rule. At least this one statement is true. So it's not true that everything you say is a lie. On the other hand, if everything you say really is a lie, then the statement, everything I say is a lie, is false. Why? It's a lie. Because everything you say is a lie. Therefore, the statement, everything I say is a lie, is a lie. And therefore, it's not a lie. It's it's true. <laughs> so either way, if it's true, it's false. And if it's false, it's false. You ought not judge is an example of a self-refuting statement. It is it's fallacious. It, when someone makes a self-refuting statement, they are basically like, um, as William Lane Craig put it, they're, they're like sawing off the branch that they're sitting on. Now, here's a problem. Obviously, this is saying you should not judge others is ridiculous because it's self-refuting. But a theological problem arises. Uh, given all that I just said, did Jesus say something self-refuting? Did he say something ridiculous? And how could God incarnate say something uh, logically fallacious? Did Jesus make a mistake? Is this teaching false? The clear answer to that is no, because what Jesus meant when he uttered these words is not the same thing that people who take this verse out of the Bible and wield it against you means. What Jesus, it's not the same thing uh, that people holding on to their pet sins mean when they quote the when they quote this verse, and we know that by looking at the verse in context. Now, for those of you um, who are Christians and who do want to study the Bible and develop your theology from it, you need to understand that it is probably the most important rule in hermeneutics. As Greg Kokel, the Christian apologist at Stand to Reason, says, never read a Bible verse. And what he means by that is never, he doesn't mean don't read the Bible. He means never read just a Bible verse. Never read just one verse by itself in isolation. Read it in its context. You need to interpret verses in their context. Do not rip them out of context, because if you rip them out of context, that can change the entire meaning, or at least what you perceive is the meaning of uh, of, of whatever text is, is in question. Now, here's the passage in context, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, not just verse 1, but including verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 as well. Jesus says, quote, do not judge or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. End quote. We can see here that Jesus isn't telling us not to judge, 
but he's telling us how to judge. Uh, in other words, don't judge hypocritically. This is what is meant by the command to take the speck of sawdust out of your own eye before you attempt to get the wood or the plank out of your brother's eye. Uh, some translation will just say speck. Uh, it, before you take the speck out of, before you get the wood out of your, the plank out of your brother's eye or log, some translations will, will put it log, you've got to get the speck out of your own eye. If you struggle with, and what, what, what these word pictures uh, illustrate is sin. Like if you've got a sin in your life, whatever that sin may be, you can't help someone who is struggling with that same sin. If you are prideful, you can't help someone else who's prideful. If you're in a, if you struggle with, uh, you know, staying faithful to your wife and not being adulterous, well, you can't, you can't reprimand and help someone else who is being adulterous, whatever, get the sin out of your own life first, then you can, you know, rebuke and help your brother. Otherwise you're, Otherwise, you're judging hypocritically. Um, and by the way, I do mean brothers and sisters in Christ. I'll have something to say about whether we should call non-Christians out on their sins in a moment. For now, just note that, as Frank Turek of Cross-Examined Ministries often says, um, Jesus is not telling us how to judge. Uh, he's not telling us not to judge. He's telling us how to judge. Jesus is saying, get the problem out of your own life first, and then you can. then you will be able to see clearly to help your brother. Now, who should we judge? Should, I, I would argue we should judge Christians, just Christians, because only Christians care about God's laws. It baffles me that some Christians go out of their way to call out the sin of a non-Christian. I'm talking about people, for example, uh, like like those who go to gay pride parades and hold up signs with Bible verses saying homosexuality is a sin. Like maybe the one out of 1 Corinthians 6 or Romans 1 or, or Leviticus 18. Um, why, why, why would you do that? I, I think we should preach against sin, not sins. This has been uh, once someone repents and embraces the gospel, then you can gently correct them on specific sins. This has been my thinking for a couple of years now. If someone does not love Jesus, he's not going to care if he's disobeying him. Let me say that again. If someone does not love Jesus, he isn't going to care whether or not he's obeying him. Preach again, preach against sin not sins. Once a person is saved, then they'll care about whether their specific behaviors are sinful in the eyes of God. Here's another way I could put this. It does little good, for example, to tell a gay atheist that the Bible says not to have gay sex. It, he doesn't care about that. You'd be better off talking natural theology or the case for the resurrection, or dealing with alleged Bible contradictions, um, than to tell him, hey, what you're doing, God does not approve of. That'd be like telling me that, it, maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but it would, be, it would be like saying to me, hey, the Book of Mormon says that you shouldn't drink caffeine, so put that Dr. Pepper down. Throw out all your Dunkin' Donut Keurig coffee cups. Well, I'm not Mormon. 
I don't care what the Book of Mormon says. I don't think it's I don't think it's a revelation from God. You would have to make me into a Mormon first before I before I gave a hoot about that. Um so yes, get get the atheist or the you know the pagan or or, or whatever kind of non-Christian you're talking to to convert to Christianity first. Get get him to become a disciple of Jesus first. And then you can say, hey, uh, this and this, you know, are are, kind of, are things that God doesn't like. Um, they don't make him happy. And he'll actually care at that point. He'll actually be like, okay, well, I love God and I don't want to displease him. So I'm going to, it, it, I didn't include this in my notes, but it really reminds me of that scene in, um, was it Athens? Where the pagans, after Paul converted them, they just were like, they were throwing out their idols and their magic books and their talismans. and they, they just made a huge bonfire out of it. But they wouldn't have done that before they, be, before they accepted Paul's message. They would have been like, we don't care about your Jesus. We're just going to continue doing our, uh, our pagan stuff. So here's what I'm saying. Get the sexually promiscuous person to embrace Jesus first, then he'll stop jumping from woman to woman. Get the adulterer to embrace Jesus first, then he'll stop cheating on his wife. And here's the thing. Most people realize they're not perfect. I'm sure we've all heard someone say, we've probably said it ourselves, uh, nobody's perfect. We've, all, we've probably heard someone say that at least once in our lives. We all intuitively realize that we have moral flaws. Now, the non-believer may disagree that those moral flaws merit eternal damnation, but they're not going to tell you that they're a perfect person. Now, occasion, but occasionally you will find a person who says, I don't need to embrace Jesus. I'm a pretty good person. Notice pretty good is not perfect. At that point, it's good to point out that pretty good is not good enough, and that God's moral standard is perfection. Sometimes I employ a tactic which I picked up from Ray Comfort, in which I walk people through the Ten Commandments, and I ask, have you ever done this at least once in your life? If so, you're a sinner, ergo you need Jesus. But I rarely find myself needed, needing to do that. Sometimes I have to do it, sometimes I don't have to do it. Uh, more often than not, I don't have to do it. Often it's enough to just point out that God's moral standard is perfection, and everyone's going to realize they haven't met that standard. In fact, most of us will acknowledge that we haven't even measured up to our own moral standard, much less God's. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, quote, If you love me, keep my commands. Uh, keep my commandments or keep my commands. If you love me, keep my commands. John chapter 14, verse 15 says, quote, If you love me, keep my commands. End quote. The implication of this verse is that those who do not love Jesus will not keep his commandments. Those who love Jesus will want to do what makes him happy. But non Christians clearly don't care what Jesus thinks. Now, Romans chapter 2 verses 14 to 15 says the moral law is written on our hearts and we you know people people who haven't don't, who don't even have special revelation the bible god's written laws uh they know the basics of right and wrong and some might choose to live uh decent lives but not everything is obvious 
from the moral law. Not everything can be read off of it. There are some things the Bible says that are sins that I, I would not intuit. I would not intuitively know that those things are sinful unless I had the Bible to tell me. I mean, the Bible does not have to tell me that murder and rape and adultery and theft are wrong. But I wouldn't know, for example, that um, that um, homosexuality is a sin, for example, or divorce, you know, except for under those few exceptions. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know that those things were morally wrong uh, without the Bible. That's just not... That's just not as obvious as things like um, torturing babies for fun is evil. Um, so I want to I want to make that clear. Um, I'm not I don't want to say non-Christians are bad people, but for those non-obvious things that can't be read off of the moral law, non-Christians may do those things, not thinking there's anything wrong with them. And if you point to the Bible verses that say there are, they're not going to care about that. If you love me, Jesus says, keep my commands. Well, they don't love Jesus. Um, they don't care what Jesus thinks. Indeed, many atheists are very clear and outspoken in their hatred of God. Just read some of the vitriolic things Richard Dawkins has, have, has said about God, for example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, quote, What business uh, is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? End quote. Let me read that verse again. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12. Quote, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? End quote. The context of this verse is Paul dealing with sexual immorality within the Corinthian church. It is difficult to tell whether this was incest or just adultery, since all Paul says is that someone had been sleeping with his father's wife. The term father's wife could mean his biological mother, or it could be a stepmother. Either way, whether it was incest or not, it was definitely adultery. And this guy was claiming to be a born-again Christian. And from verses 1 to 11, Paul is chastising the Corinthians for not excommunicating this man. Apparently, he was unrepentant. Evidently, they had told him, hey, you need to stop doing this. You need to stop sleeping with your father's wife. Stop having sex with your father's wife. Just stop. And apparently, he just is unrepentant, unremorseful. And Paul is saying, why haven't you gotten rid of this guy yet? Um. And it's on the heels of this context that Paul makes the statement in verse 12. What, you know, what is, business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Yeah, he, he, he's, he implies that Christians have no business casting judgment on those outside of Christ, but rather we ought to judge those inside. We ought to stop being surprised, as Greg Kokel says, uh, we, we ought to stop being surprised that the world acts worldly. The world is going to act worldly. That's just a fact. We should stop gasping in shock every time someone who isn't a Christian does something ungodly. And then we go on our, our little conservative television programs or podcasts and, and rant about it. We ought to stop that 
And instead, we should focus on those in the sheepfold. Goats are going to act like goats. Focus on tending to the sheep. Now, of course, the caveat here is that we want people who are not Christians to become Christians because only eternal life is available through Christ, John 3.16, John 3.36. Um, and God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. 1 Timothy 2.4 says God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So because we want what God wants, we want all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth as well. So we want people to become Christians, and with that is an entailment that we want them to give up their sinful behaviors. It kind of feels like this is just kind of sneaking it in through the back door. Like we don't judge outsiders for their behaviors, but we got, we want them to become Christians, which will then require them to give up those behaviors. Um, that's, that's, just, that's just the way it is. Um, but like I said, you need to get them to actually fall in love with Jesus before they care about whether their conduct offends him or not. Topic two, what's this talk about casting pearls before swine? In Matthew chapter seven, verse six, we read, quote, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces, end quote. Now, I initially thought, and this is, this is what a lot of commentators say, is that this is about preaching the gospel to non-Christians who are opposed to you. It's about being choosy about who you share your message with. Otherwise, you might receive very, very harsh persecution from people who are hard-hearted and just they, they're not receptive to anything you have to say. But as I would, and, and I came to this conclusion as I was preparing this slide, like as I was in Canva putting the slides together, it just dawned on me, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't think this is about preaching to non-Christians at all. I think it's about, I think it's connected to the previous topic we talked about, about judging. Think about it. This, this verse comes on the heel, or wait, verse? Yes, verse, it's, it's one verse. Uh, this verse comes on the heels of what Jesus said about judging hypocritically. Therefore, I think what Jesus is saying is that if a Christian, or at least, at least someone who claims to be a Christian, is living in unrepentant sin, and, and, and maybe they're the kind of person who doesn't receive criticism well, just leave them alone. Now, the reference to dogs, it's really the, the dogs and the swine references that lead people to think it's talking about non-believers. Um, that's, that's really, I think, what drives that conclusion. Um, and I, I, needn't dis, I need not dispute that point. How, when you think about it, if someone is living in persistent, unrepentant sin, like the guy who potentially was doing the naughties with his mom, his mom at worst, his stepmom at best, a person living in unrepentant sin, they refuse to listen to correction. Does that person really love God? And if they don't love God, do they really belong to him? 
Remember the verses in the previous section, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll, you'll obey my commandments. And 1 Corinthians 5, where the Corinthians, like they couldn't get this potentially incestuous adulterer to stop doing the hanky-panky with his mom. Moreover, there's a couple of verses in this very same chapter, which, you know, we'll get to in due time, in which Jesus says, not everyone who says to him, Lord, Lord, really belongs to him. So I don't think the reference to dogs really challenges my interpretation. If, if someone would turn and tear you to pieces because they won't give up their sinful lifestyle, it would be hard to see how that person really belongs to God. So in a way, it kind of is about non-believers, but it's about a special kind of non-believers. It's about nominal Christians or false converts, people who say, oh, yes, I love God. I, I love Jesus. I believe the Bible and all that. But I'm living this, you know, immoral lifestyle and I have no intention on stopping. Uh, such a person, such a person would evidently not be mourning over their poverty in spirit. They would not be meek. They would not be pure of heart. They wouldn't fit the profile of the Christian as laid out in the Beatitudes. See part one for more on this, in which I unpack the Beatitudes. Now, we have to keep in mind the reality that fundamentalists exist. I have been accused of sinning for all sorts of obviously non-sinful behavior. <coughs> Excuse me. And when I list the things that I've been accused of, you know, being a horrible sinner over, you, you will see that any rational person will see that <laughs> I turned on these people and, you know, tore them to pieces, metaphorically speaking. Like, I didn't, I didn't beat them up or anything, but I, I kind of, you know, as they as they say, rip them a new one verbally. <laughs> uh, I had a good cause for doing so. Uh, they were annoying, holier than thou people who got butt hurt because I didn't follow their man-made rules. Here are some of the examples. I've been accused of sinning for listening to rock music. Yes, I yes, I am an unapologetic metalhead. And never mind that most like 99% of the rock and metal I listen to nowadays are Christian rock and metal bands like Skillet, Red, Cutlass, Disciple, Demon Hunter, um, The Letter Black, uh, for example. It doesn't matter. It apparently, in, apparently instruments are inherently evil. You know, go figure. I don't understand the logic. Uh, I've been refuted. I've been rebuked for watching Shonen anime. Even though I... Although I and although I have, you know, shown an anime, it's just like you know stuff like Naruto and Bleach and Full Metal Alchemist. And although I have never, I've never personally have been accused of sinning for going to the movie theaters. This evidently was a big thing in the 1960s. I've heard my mom and my aunt talk about it. This has cut. This came up a couple of times in Martin Lloyd Jones's book *Studies in the Sermon on the Mount*, which I read in preparation for the series. And C.S. Lewis mentioned it a couple of times. Now, C.S. Lewis and Martin Lloyd Jones were not of the opinion that going to the cinema uh, was a sin, but it, it, it did come up in in their conversations. Now, I don't get why this was a thing. Well, I don't get why any of these things are are a thing, but apparently it was. Uh, playing, I've been accused of sinning for being a gamer. I've been accused of sinning for posting art depicting Jesus. Now, I, ha I had a whole rant on my Facebook page explaining that pictures of a human being, which Jesus is, 
you have to affirm the humanity of Jesus, lest you are a you know, lest you be a docetist heretic. Uh, that's not a second commandment violation because it isn't about this command. The, the second commandment is not about images anyway. The second commandment is about idolatry. Uh, but we can save this. Um, you know, you could go on Cerebral Faith Facebook page and and see my argument for why a picture or a statue of Jesus is is not a sec, uh, a two CV as people on Facebook say. I've been and I've been rebuked for daring to read modern translations of the Bible. You know, by those who are are called King James onlyists. I've been rebuked. I've been rebuked over lots of stupid reasons. None. If you ha if you have any amount of brain cells, you will see that none of these things are sinful. None of these. Th I mean, none of these things are explicitly prohibited by in the Bible. Nor can their prohibition be inferred from principles laid out in the Bible. They're, it's not explicit or implicit. And you can see, these, these backwards believers, why do, they, why do they see anything morally wrong with these? The fact that they do is just mind-boggling. I, I cannot wrap my head around it. I could list a lot of other things that, you know, in this, the so-called satanic panic thing, which never, it started in the 1980s. But it never ended. So here, maybe, I'm saying all of this to point out that if someone doesn't respond positively to your so-called rebuke, maybe you better make sure that what you're condemning really is sinful in the first place. It may be that the other person isn't sinning at all, and it's just you who have a poor grasp on the Bible's moral commandments. Maybe you're an illogical individual who can't exegete his way out of a paper bag. Now, if the person, if the other person really is doing something sinful, that's another story. Topic three, the wide and narrow gates. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, quote, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it, end quote. Now, there are two questions that arise from this verse. These two verses out of the Sermon on the Mount have been a, a thorn in my side for years because these two questions, which arise from the text, for the longest time, I had no idea how to answer. First is... Does this mean that God has not created a world with an optimal balance or an optimum balance of saved to lost? What does Matthew 7, 13 to 14 imply about this? Uh, at face value, it seems like Jesus is teaching that most people will be condemned and only a minority will be saved. While it may be the case that millions and millions and millions of people will be saved, and the ratio of saved to lost, you know, may, uh, for example, be 51% of all humanity is lost and 49% of all people are saved, that's still a majority. You still have more people going to hell than people going to heaven. 
How is this an optimal balance? Second question that arises from this text is, does this imply works-based salvation? To appreciate this point, you need to we need to read the passage, the parallel passage in Luke's account, um, because Luke actually talks about it being hard or difficult to enter through the narrow gate. This is absent from Matthew's version of Jesus' teaching, but it is very much present in Luke's account, and it seems to be emphasized in Luke's parallel account. Now, first, what about the optimal balance? Well, look at what the dictionary says about uh, the definition of the word optimal. It means best or most favorable, optimum, as in seeking the most, uh, seeking the optimal solution. Perhaps all that is meant. Now, I sent this question to uh, William Lane Craig, and and I told Kevin Harris about it. Um, so that he. Dr. Craig might be addressing these two questions on the Reasonable Faith podcast shortly. Uh, I hope so. And I'm interested in hearing what he has to say about it. But these are, I thought long and hard, and I did a lot of reading. And these these two answers are, are the ones that I, I came up with. Um, like when you look at the definition of optimal, it just means it's the best option or the most favorable option. Perhaps all that is meant is that God actualized a world with the least number of damned that he could and the most number of saved that he could. And while this doesn't result in the majority of humanity being saved, perhaps the majority isn't as large uh, of a majority as in other feasible worlds. Again, optimal simply means most favorable or best. The best or or most favorable outcome in this case, it may be, and this is this is just a guess. Uh, it could be that forty nine percent of all people are, end up saved, and fifty one percent of all people uh, end up condemned, and that is the most favorable or best outcome. Not the best outcome inherently. Actually, the best outcome would be 100% of people of all humanity being saved, universalism. But this may be the best that God could do, given libertarian free will, and given that grace can be resisted, and, you know, the reasons why God gave humanity libertarian free will. I talked about this um, in my Problem of Evil videos, as well as my Doctrine of Hell videos. God gave humanity free will so that we can be morally responsible and so that our love for him and each other can be um, genuine rather than artificial. You you can't have genuinely coerced love. Uh, Given an Arminian understanding, and again, I've defended Arminianism in previous live stream videos, uh, and I'm going to talk about it in some CFL snippets. You can see uh, such in season one of the Cere- of Cerebral Faith Live, like Tulip on Trial, the case against the limit, uh, the is it the case against limited atonement, or did I? Or, I think I titled it a biblical case for unlimited atonement, or maybe it was a biblical case against limited atonement. Um, a maximally great uh, argument against Calvinism. Uh, I've defended that soteriology in, in other videos. Given an Arminian understanding of God's universal salvific love, Jesus' provisional atonement for all, God's provenient grace extended to all, um, and a Molinist understanding of election via God's middle knowledge, 
And if it is true, as I argued both in my Problem of Evil series and in my Doctrine of Hell series, uh, that, you know, the Problem of Evil series was not Cerebral Faith Live. Those were edited and uploaded. Um, if, the, if it is true that there is no feasible world where all people always do what God wants all the time, that any world God, if it's true that any world God creates, there will be at least some who choose to do evil and some who choose not to repent. There are some who do, um, some who reject the gospel. There, in, a, in any feasible world of free creatures, with as much good as this one that God could create, there are some saved and some damned. Then perhaps. This is the best uh, that he could manage, given those factors, given that he's not forcing everyone into heaven. Um, now, there may be other feasible worlds which have an even higher number of lost people in them. I'm not saying the, the ratio is 49% saved and 51% condemned, but given what Jesus says, it has to be at least that, because Jesus is using... The words few and many, and they're, they're relative terms, but he is using them to say to use um, a contrast between a smaller number and a larger number. So it has to be, it can't be any small, the ratio cannot be any smaller than 49% saved and 51% damned. Uh, otherwise, it makes no sense why Jesus says many find the wide gate to destruction and few find the way to life. Um, I mean, think about this. It's like if you ha if if I say if someone were like to do a study and they said only two billion people around the globe per year get a flu shot, I might say, "Wow, I can't believe so few people get vaccinated." Well, two billion is not two billions a rather large number of people, but there are seven billion people approximately on the planet. So. Compared to, you know, 7 billion, you know, you have 2 billion, that's a smaller number than the many, you know, than the number of people who don't get vaccinated. And so you have a few and many. Now, the, here's the one, here's the, the second issue. What about the works-based salvation issue? Does this passage imply works-based salvation? In Luke chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, Jesus... We read, quote, he, he, that is Jesus, said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will, uh, there will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. End quote. So hopefully you can see the problem. Jesus' same teaching about the narrow gate appears in Luke's gospel. 
And whereas difficulty is absent from Matthew's account, you can see it is present here in Luke's account. Jesus says to make every effort to enter through the door, or as the ESV puts it, strive to enter through the narrow, the narrow door. And he says many will try, many will try to enter it, but fail. Well, why would it be hard to enter if all you have to do is believe in Jesus? It really looks like Jesus is saying you have to work your way into heaven. And yet we know this cannot be so because justification by faith alone is taught elsewhere in the Bible, and we know that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. Some places are implicit, while some, such as Romans 4 and Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, are explicit. So what in the world is Jesus getting at here? Well, I as I was searching around the internet for, you know, the answers to, to this, um, I found this article written in 1991, the year I was born, mind you. Uh, I mean, the year before I was born, um, by Bob Wilkin, which is titled, If It's Free, Why Would Anyone Need to Strive to Enter? And he writes, quote, Clearly the struggle involved here in concerns finding the right gate to enter. The Lord's point is that those who don't know the way to eternal life should exert every effort to find out. It's as simple as that. This concept is taught in a number uh, of other passages of Scripture. Hebrews 11.6 says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In John 6.27, the Lord told unbelieving Jews who were seeking more miraculous signs, like the feeding of the 5,000, which had just occurred, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. They then asked, What shall we do, that we may work the works of God? Verse 28. Jesus' response has nothing to do with change of lifestyle. It, it is a simple call to faith. He said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Verse 29. In Acts 17.27, Paul told the Athenian philosophers that God has set up mankind so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Those who do not know the way to heaven are to strive to find out. They are to seek the truth. Strive to enter the, by the narrow gate? You bet. Of course, once you've entered, you no, long, you no longer need to seek the gate anymore. You found it. That doesn't contradict the freeness of the gospel at all, end quote. And also, this seems to be the answer given in, in different words in the Lexham Content Commentary um, introduced by Leland Riken. Um, Douglas Magnum, who wrote this uh, portion, he, he said, quote, chapter 13, verses 24 to 25, Jesus does not give an exact answer to the man's question, uh, but that he says the door, oh, by the way, um, Jesus is said, when it says in this passage, Jesus said to him, he said to him up here, uh, that somebody asked him a question. He said, Lord, will only a few be saved? Um, and that was, that was the question of, will all Jews be saved? Will all of Israel be saved or will only a few righteous Jews be saved? And that's Jesus's answer, uh, to him. So. Chapter 13, Douglas Magnum says, quote, chapter 13, verses 24 to 25, Jesus does not give an answer to the man's question, but 
that he says the door is narrow uh, shows that salvation is not something into which people stumble. A person must strive or be spiritually focused to enter while the door is open. If one does not strive to enter while the door is open, one will find uh, one is shut out from salvation. Chapter 13, verses 26 to 27. To explain what he has just said, Jesus shows that one must strive to enter the narrow door because simply being in the presence of, of <laughs> he says here, the Jesus uh, or entering or hearing his teaching does not mean that one is in a relationship with him that will result in final salvation. That was probably a typo. Chapter 13, verses 28 to 29, Jesus paints a horrifying picture for some in his Jewish audience. They will see their forefathers in the end time kingdom, but will find themselves in hell. On the other hand, many Gentiles will enter into the kingdom. Once again, it is one's response to Jesus and his teaching and not one's ancestry that determines where one will spend uh, eternity, end quote. I think, and I think it's funny here that this typo, he says, the Jesus. So it's like the Batman or the Donald. <laughs> you know, Judas and Satan be like, tonight we kill the Jesus. <laughs> Topic 4, True and False Prophets. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20, quote, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear a good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them, end quote. Now, what a, what's the prophet's fruit? There's debate over this. Is it teachings or is it behavior? Well, I don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, uh, but um, I my thoughts are basically summed up by this gotquestions.org quotation that I took from their website. Uh, where they write, quote, when Jesus says you will know them by their fruit, what does fruit mean? Jesus gave the illustration of grapevines and fig trees. When we see grapevines, we expect them to contain grapes in season. We also expect fig trees to produce figs. A produce farmer who notices one of his fruit trees not bearing any fruit will cut it down. It is useless. Likewise, we would not come to a field of thistles and expect to harvest fruit. Thistles and thorn bushes can never produce fruit because of their nature. It is impossible. They have no capacity to produce anything but thorns. Matthew chapter 12 verse 33. In our lives, every word and every action is fruit from our hearts. Uh, sinners sin because that's what's in their hearts. Thieves steal, rapists attack, and adulterers cheat because those sins are the fruit being produced uh, from an evil heart. Bad hearts produce bad fruit. When Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit, concerning false teachers, he was giving us a guide for ident uh, identifying them. False prophets, speakers of lies, will have actions that correspond to their errant message, 
just as their message is and just as their message is anti-god so will be their works they will stray from the path of righteousness end quote so um in a nutshell i think the answer is both you will know false teachers by their false teachings you know if they're denying the deity of christ if they're denying the incarnation or the resurrection uh, they've got some questionable like you know prosperity gospels in our modern day but you might say the judaizers back in the first century you know you can doctrinally examine them see if they're orthodox and sound but also they will have sinful life you know sin sinful actions often accompanying them uh you may have one or the other um and you may they may be able to keep up a facade of righteousness for a time it's also true that people might can be doctrinally sound but be morally heinous i mean we know unfortunately um you know like some catholic priests who uh abuse children for example or in you know protestant apologetics community ravi zacharias and some of the things that he did. Um, so, and fruit testing, yeah, it's not easy. It's not obvious. They are, they're wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus said, you know. Uh, and they're, they're sheep costumes to uh, build upon the illustration. It can be, their sheep costumes can be pretty persuasive. And sometimes they look and sound a lot like sheep. They look like sheep, they uh, bleat like sheep, and sometimes it's discernible, but in some instances you really, really, really have to pay close attention. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not so obvious, but it's not so non-obvious either, and sometimes you really have to focus, but by their fruits you will know them. Test, test the fruits of the you know and and right and here in this context he says prophet and i really think he literally just means prophet like a like isaiah or like jeremiah like but it, i think the principle here extends to teachers of the bible as well um even though jesus has in mind prophets i think he's not using prophets as just a catch-all term but nevertheless i think the principle that jesus is setting forth can extend to modern day christian apologists pastors preachers the you know theologians and bible scholars as well uh, people who aren't necessarily receiving direct revelation from god but who have some sort of ministry judge judge the fruit judge the fruit of the one who you whom you are hearing Now, topic five, true and false disciples. I find it very interesting. Jesus talks about false teachers, you know, and a prophet is a, a kind of teacher. Um, and then he goes on to false students, false disciples. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, we read, quote, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? 
then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers, end quote. Now, this verse has always scared me ever since I was a teenager. The, and here's why it's terrifying. The, perhaps the most terrifying thing about this verse is that it shows that nominal Christians, it doesn't just show nominal Christians are a thing. We, you know, Most of us have known that for a long time. But it shows that a nominal Christian is not just someone who is apathetic towards God and living for him. It's not just someone who doesn't. A false, a nominal Christian or a false convert can be extremely zealous. The, the this passage has always disturbed me. It, it does even a little bit even to this day because it raises the question: How can we know we're saved? How do we know we're not one of these people? Jesus is going to say, away from me, I never knew you on, on Judgment Day. How do we know we're not in that category? Um, just, just affirming the creeds isn't enough because, as James 2.19 says, even the demons believe. And we know what's going to happen to the demons. Just read Revelation 20. Um, and being passionately, religiously observant just isn't a deciding factor either. So... You know, you have belief that Christianity is true. You you are trying to live for, for God and, and, and be active in, in the Christian community. And like neither of these, th these things are like necessary conditions, but they're not sufficient conditions. How do we, how can we know? How do we, how do we know? Uh, I mean, if somebody looks like they're trying to live zealously for God, if we, I mean, well, there's two ways. One is the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter eight verse sixteen. Romans chapter eight verse sixteen says, quote, "The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children." End quote. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. In other words, you can have an inward assurance given by the third person of the Trinity, that yes, you are a child of God, yes, you are a true follower of Jesus, you have been regenerated, you have been washed clean by the blood he shed for you on the cross, you can have this assurance that you're, you're, you are the genuine article. And the Holy Spirit gives you that. And a corollary as it, is that uh, this is one of the reasons why I can't affirm hardcore evidentialism. Uh, while I do... I've talked about this. I caused quite a stir on social media talking about this, but um, I don't fully track with William Lane Craig's properly basic uh, inner witness epistemology, but I can't totally get rid of it either because of this verse. I mean, if, if the Spirit testifies to you that you're a child of God, he has to testify to God's existence as well. Otherwise, if there's no God, there's no child, uh, there's no God to be a child of. God's existence is logically prior to being a child of God. So if he testifies to the latter, he testifies to the former as well. So I, I, my, my Christian epistemology is what I call soft evidentialism. Yes, belief in God can be properly basic. You can believe based on the Spirit's inner witness. Um, what I don't, what I disagree with Craig on, and I, this is a bit of a tangent, I know, but it is the whole uh, defeater, defeater thing. I, I don't think, you know, and, you know, enough of that. But, yeah, this is, 
the spirit here, this verse says, yes, the Holy Spirit can give you assurance. You are saved. You are in Christ. You are in God. And he's going to testify to you about that. And if you're not, he's going to convict you of that. So, you know, if you're not, don't worry about that either. He'll, 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 he'll get a hold of you and, um, you know, just don't resist him when he does. Um, secondly, and yes, you can resist the spirit. Contra Calvinists. See Acts chapter seven, verse fifty-one. Um, the, the second uh, re way you can know is compare yourself to the Beatitudes. Uh, remember, if you've been watching since part one of this series, way back in I think June, uh, then you'll recall that the Beatitudes are not a prescription of what Christians ought to do; it's a description of what Christians are. Now, no one will find themselves exemplifying all of the Beatitudes to their maximal extent 100% of the time. We are fallen creatures who occasionally sin. But for the truly born-again Christian to not be mourning over their poverty in spirit, to not be meek, or to not be a peacemaker, uh, for examples, that will be to act out of character. It is also the case that brand new Christians who haven't undergone much sanctification won't find themselves in here. However, if you are, one, truly born again, and two, if you've been a Christian for more than a few years, um, you, you will find yourself more closely approximating to the Beatitudes than not. You, you will read the Beatitudes and think, that kind of sounds like me. It's true, I can think of times uh, when this when this or that beatitude didn't describe me, but I am more generally like this than not. Again, I recommend going back to part one of the series if you haven't seen it or listened to it yet, um, and listen to it or, or watch it, depending on whether you're listening to the audio podcast or, or the live web show, uh, to get a full exposition uh, of the beatitudes. The whole one-hour program on, on me just expositing the Beatitudes, the blessed are used. Um, it was actually from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones's book, Studies in the Sermon on the Mount, that I discovered this, that I discovered that the Beatitudes can serve as a measuring stick for salvation, so that we can, as Paul said, to test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. In the faith. Topic six. The wise and foolish builders. Now, hold on, I'm going to take a, a swig of my drink because I've been talking for an hour nonstop. Okay, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Jesus says, quote, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, and the, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. End quote. Now, 
we can see here that Jesus is presenting us with two different kinds of people. There's people who listen to him and the people who don't listen to him. And he compares it. He says, the person who listens to me, he's like someone who builds his house on rock, solid rock. Harsh weather can come and his his house is going to stand up. But the person built on sand, that's going to just that's going to be washed away. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to collapse. And that's a foolish person, a person who doesn't listen to what to Jesus is teaching. Now, this and the one the teaching before it combined really make you think about what exactly does Jesus think about himself? Who does Jesus think he is? Imagine your favorite Bible teacher ending his sermon or his lecture. Imagine me ending a Cerebral Faith Live episode with something like this. The foolish person is the one who obeys my, who listens to my words and puts them into practice. But the, uh, I mean, uh, the wise person is someone who hears my words and puts them into practice. The foolish person is, is someone who doesn't. So if you want to be a wise person, you better listen to what Evan Minton has to say. Also, on the day of judgment, I'm going to determine whether or not you get into heaven. Like, imagine me saying that. Imagine William Lane Craig saying that, or John Piper, or John MacArthur, or Billy Graham, Franklin Graham, but fill in the blank. Take any mere human Bible teacher and imagine him say, imagine them ending their sermon or their lesson. Imagine William Lane Craig ending his defender's class with something like that. What would you think? What would you think of that person? What would you, how would you react? You'd probably respond, who do you think you are, God? Yeah, who, who do you think you are, God? Especially, in not only just saying, hey, you you got to listen to me. If you don't, you're foolish, and you're like a person who builds his house on solid rock. But especially saying that after you say, oh, oh yeah, um, and by the way, I am in charge about... Oh, whether or not you get into heaven. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and, and this and this in your name? And I will say to them, away from me, I never knew you. Wow. Like, imagine, wow, Evan Minton thinks he's in charge of who gets into heaven? William Lane Craig, Billy Graham, John MacArthur thinks he's in charge of who's gonna, of who's gonna get into heaven? And whoever lists, whoever doesn't agree with him or listen to his, you know, his advice is foolish. I mean, that would sound really, really arrogant. Now, as Christians, we believe Jesus is God, so we don't think these things are arrogant. We would expect God incarnate to say these kinds of things. But I want you to just imagine, just pretend, just kind of pretend. Let's just assume for the sake of the argument that Jesus is just a mere human teacher. What mere human teacher would talk like this? If Jesus were not God in the flesh, the word become flesh, as John 1, 14 says, this would be, the, the, these last two teachings that Jesus ends his sermon with would be, it would make him really, really arrogant. But it's not, I don't think it's arrogant at all because I think Jesus is God incarnate. Now, we 
in, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 to 29, we read, quote, When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at the way he taught. He wasn't like the teachers of the law. Instead, he taught with authority, end quote. Now there, um, I will end it and just leave you with that. There, there was a reason they were amazed. Um, if I heard, I'd be, like I said, if I heard any of my favorite Bible teachers talk the way Jesus talked, I'd be amazed too. I'd be like, wow, this guy thinks really, really highly of himself. He has the, he says the audacity to say, you have heard that it was said, blah, 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 but I say unto you, I'm going to decide whether or not you get into heaven. And um, yeah, you're, you're foolish or or wise, depending on whether you listen, listen to me or not. So that is the end of, that is the end of this series. We've got, we have gone through the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, and yeah, we are done. Now, I want to thank you for listening to Cerebral Faith, uh, to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, or watching Cerebral Faith Live, whether you are watching this as a web show on YouTube, or whether you're listening to the audio podcast later um, on Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, Podbean, or wherever you can uh, get audio podcasts. And let me pull up my patron manager list. So I can give a shout out when the time comes in a couple of minutes. Uh, next week, see where where's my Google Chrome window? Okay, next week we're going to be talk. I'm going to have Chris Date on the program. He, you know, Chris Date from The Apologetics, and you you may also know him from Rethinking Hell. He is uh, he he does the the web show Rethinking Hell Live, and also the Rethinking Hell podcast. And uh, we're going to be talking about cessationism versus continuationism and also glossolalia versus xenolalia. In other words, you know, what speaking in tongues first are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Do they are they still being distributed today or not? And secondly, um, if like, say, if the gift of tongues is still being distributed, well, what is the gift of tongues? Is it this angelic? heavenly language that no one on earth speaks, or is it just earthly languages? Uh, so Chris Date is going to be on the uh, the program, and I will be interviewing him about that. And then sometime after that, I don't know if it'll be Saturday after that, or it will be after the Chris Date interview. I just don't know when. I don't know if I'll be able to stream it when I want to stream it, uh, because it's, I'm also having a guest on. But I'll have Hugh Ross, Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe on the program, and, and we will be talking about his newest book, Designed to the Core. Um, I have the book with me right here, and I'm really excited to dig into it because it's a book about the cosmic and local fine-tuning argument, which are a couple of my favorite arguments for the existence of God. Um, and I'm just kind of wondering, well, he wrote a new book. He's, he's written a lot about this before, and if he's written a new book on it, 
there must be some new discoveries that came out that I am not previously aware of. So I'm interested in finding out what those are. Like, did we discover more fine-tuning? Um, and, yeah, that's that's going to be interesting. That's going to be... So you won't want to miss that. And you will... If you attend live... You attend the Cerebral Faith Live on the YouTube channel live, you'll be able to leave your comment in the um, in the live chat like like this, and uh, you'll you'll be able to leave questions for Chris Day and Hugh Ross. And after the Hugh Ross interview, I think I'm going to be done with Cerebral Faith Live for the the year. I think that'll be. I mean, we are into the fall. The autumnal season now, and I do I do have a book that I need to get to, and I would like to start blogging again. Uh, but after after two more episodes, yeah, I think I'll I think I'll quit and then um, have season three of Cerebral Faith Live, season five of the audio podcast next spring. So those are some things you can look forward to in the next couple of weeks. Um, and also, I would like to ask for your prayers. I, um, my obsessive compulsive disorder is kind of reaching a critical max level, and I don't. You've probably noticed this, but occasionally when I'm giving these presentations, you will hear a knocking sound. That is an OCD ritual. Uh, I used to I used to be able to resist it when doing podcasts and live and live streams, but that is not the case anymore. Um, so if you've ever wondered what that is, you hear it like maybe five or six times uh, or more in a program. Yeah, that's that's what that is. Um, and I'm I'm getting a uh, book. It should I think it's I think Alex. I think you know who uh, the Echo Dot lady. She said that it's in the mail. It, it's already it's it's arrived. It is called, and I will show you this on the screen. Um, it's called Brain Lock. Free your uh, Brain Lock. Free yourself from obsessive compulsive behavior. Written by Jerry Schwartz. He's a he, he's a psychiatrist, and uh, Nick Peters of Deeper Waters uh, recommended this book to me a while back, but I haven't read it because. Uh, I'm not really a big believer in self-help books, um, but a lot of people here on Amazon are saying that it helped them and, and, and it works. And I, I think before I go to multiple therapy sessions, which will end up being really, really expensive in the long run, I ought to at least try the cheaper option first um, and, and see if maybe this really can I just, I really need to dial it back. And also, um, I've decided that I want to go into academia as I, I'm not content with just being a well-read layman or a credentialed layman to uh, just, that just does blogs and, and podcasts and live streams and videos and stuff. I actually do want to go into scholarship as a vocation. And I wish, I hope you would pray that I can find a way to pay for this. There are some things I need to get in my life in order first. 
um, that I I'm not I'm not going to go into right now. But there's some things that I should have taken care of when I was younger that I I, I need to take care of before I pursue university. Um, but I pray that you would help me figure out how I'm going to pay for this. Cause I really, I've thought about it really hard for long periods of time for the past decade, even. And I've discovered that that, that really is what I'm, I'm meant to do. This, this is what I'm meant to do. It's what I want to do. It's what I feel like God is calling me to do. I would be good at it. And quite frankly, I don't want to do anything else with my life career-wise. For me, anything else, anything besides this would be just a job. It would just be something to put food on the table and something that I'd just be forced to do. I don't really have an interest in doing anything else except Christian scholarship. Um, so pray that I can find a way to afford to do that because... And that's really the only obstacle. I am willing to work my butt off. I'm willing to devote as much effort and as much time to study and research and attending classes. And I'll 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 even live on campus in another country if I have to. I mean, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to become an academic. But I really feel like this is what I'm called to do. I am called, and my ultimate goal is to eventually get up there and actually work at a university as one of the professors, as one of the professors. That's my, that's my shonen protagonist goal, you know? It's like Naruto, he always wanted to be the Hokage. Uh, Luffy wants to be the Pirate King. Deku wants to be the next symbol of peace. Well, that's my shonen protagonist goal. Um, but I've got a few training arcs I need to endure before I, uh, <laughs> before I undergo that. And one of those training arcs is getting rid of my OCD because that's whatever that's going to make everything I do much harder. So you know, as I try to transition into a new phase of life, I pray that you would. Uh, I hope that you. I ask that you would keep me in your prayers and. You know, one thing you can do is you can become a patron, www.patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Um, that would, that helps finance, that helps out financially. And um, it's just, it's just additional money that I can use for ministry and attending a seminary or, you know, that, that would be part, that would, that would, that would be part of it. Um, by the way, I want to finish with, if you like the video and subscribe, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to this on the audio podcast, uh, go over to iTunes and leave a review. That'll help people, help more people find the, um, find the podcast. And if you want more apologetics content, I've got lots of written content. It's not just podcasts and videos I make, but all of my, cerebralfaith.net is a hub for all my content. Um... And yeah, I guess that's all I have to say for this stream. Um, and I guess I'll cut it off. So thank you for watching Cerebral Faith Live, or thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Peace out, God bless, and keep using the brains that God gave you.